context. And then we'll take a look at verse 12 this morning. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Far from it. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came to life, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. I'm going to keep reading for a moment. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Far from it. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by bringing about my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, sold into bondage to death. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look into your word, that you would give us understanding of what it means that the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk in holiness, righteousness, and in goodness for your great namesake. So we pray your spirit to be upon us this morning that you would instruct us and fill us that we might hear from you. Fill me that you might speak to me and share with me those things that you desire to share with others. We thank you, Lord, for your holy word that is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And so we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning, and, and we ask this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. So as we were going through this on Wednesday night, verse 12 did stick out to me, and we kind of touched on it and kind of didn't. And I thought, this is really a full verse, and I really wanted to, to take time and look at it, where it says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy uh, and righteous and good. So I believe it is talking about, and, and there are different views on this. So you've got to understand that, that I've, uh, there, there's a lot. This portion of Romans is very difficult, and there's a lot of different controversial views. Well, they're not really controversial unless you don't agree with them. How's that? But there's a lot of different views uh, on how this particular passage is interpreted. And I, I'm going to give you my best shot on this, but particularly when we get into the conflict of serving two masters, which we will start to work our way into uh, very soon, and, and what that means to us as well. Um, but, but in the law, I think it's my opinion is it's talking about Torah. 
So it's also talking about the teaching because as I brought out to you in the Hebrew, the word Torah uh, means teaching. And it's, I did some more digging, and, in, and as I've told you before, in Torah, there's 613 commandments. 613. And of those 613, 365 are prohibitions. In other words, they are the thou shall nots of Torah. That means there's also 248 that are positive commands, or the thou shalts, if you will. Just a little bit of tidbit information for you, but I think it's important to understand this. And, 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 and Paul's argument here is that, that sin made us aware of, uh, of uh, excuse me, the law made us aware of sin. Even though, and he talked about this in chapter 5, even though in chapter 5, sin reigned from, from, uh, uh, from Adam all the way to Moses. Remember we looked at that? Now, as I, I did some more reading, chapter 5 and chapter 7, or at least this portion of chapter 7, is essentially saying pretty much the same thing, all right? Remember I've told you that, this, that in this book it keeps cycling back to things that he has previously stated? But chapter 5 is more of a universal uh, setting, talking about humanity as a whole. And what we, we see here in chapter 7, it's more on the personal level. So chapter 5 would be the, the macro view, the overarching view, the, 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 the big picture view. Chapter 7 would be the micro view and, and really the examination of, of, of the individual hearts. Uh, but, of course, Plato brought up this idea that the city, which is more the macro view, the city is the soul, the individual soul writ large. In other words, what, what you see going on on the macro view, the large view, the big picture view, is also that which is happening in the individual hearts. So Paul is, is actually differentiating between the two here in this book, breaking it down and giving us that, that micro view here of the individual. Uh, and he talks about the law. The law is holy and the commandment is holy. Now, why did he differentiate between the two? That was the question I went into this with this, with looking at this particular verse. And, and I don't have a real good answer, because, but, but I feel really good about that because nobody else did either. But what I understand is, is, again, the law is Torah, the 613 commands, and that macro view, that overarching uh, generalized worldview is holy. Good catch. And it comes down to the commands of the law which at times when we are living our lives, we are being confronted with a command or a few commands, but um, it is rare that we have the full 613 commands fully in our face as we're going about our lives. 
In other words, as we live our day, we, we encounter situations where we have a crossroad of whether we are going to be obey the commands of God or be disobedient to the commands of God. So it's the micro view uh, again. So the law is, is this overarching teaching that God has given uh, Israel. And incidentally, we, we see in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that the law, and, and uh, it says, Therefore, uh, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is knowledge of sin. So we always have to read chapter 7 in light of what we have read already in the book of Romans. So we know that the, the law never justifies in part because we can't keep the law. But the law is there to give us our understanding of sin. And so as I'm looking at this passage, Paul is differentiating between law and commands because the general view of the overarching law that, that, that sits over our lives and the specific commands that are within the law that pertain to the specific situations that we encounter in our daily lives. Does that make sense? So essentially, you could almost use these two words, uh, um, I want to say synonymously, because I always mispronounce that, so I'm not going to say that, but they essentially mean the same thing, the law and commands, the commands that are a part of the law. And, and the, 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 the problem with this whole passage, and that's why I went back to verse 7, I probably could have actually gone back to verse 1 of, of chapter 7, uh, it is, is this idea of, of this differentiation between law and sin. And uh, the problem is that the law raises our awareness of sin. But it is not the sin, excuse me, it is not the law that causes death, but it is the sin that causes death. It is the violation of the law that causes death. And, and so, again, we're talking about our individual lives and this idea of knowing the law brings us knowledge. Knowing the law brings knowledge. Now, knowledge, it's been said, it can be a very dangerous thing. Um, I'll just say partial knowledge can be a very dangerous thing. How's that? Of course, we all have partial knowledge. We never have full knowledge on anything, I don't think. Although I can introduce you to some people who think they do, but I'm not going to go down that this morning. But the thing is, is that the law brings knowledge of sin. And when we have a knowledge of sin, it takes us to a crossroad. It takes us to a crossroad because there's a knowledge that leads to rebellion where it says, again, uh, sin in Romans 7, sin taking occasion that we just uh, read earlier um, or it, uh, sin taking, an, verse 8, sin taking an opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind it becomes a knowledge that leads to rebellion. 
And by the way, who is he writing this to? The church. He's writing, I woke some people up. He's writing to the church. I've met some pretty rebellious Christians, haven't you? Of course you have. Or of course you haven't, either way. Uh, of course we have. At times we have been rebellious Christians. It is a knowledge that leads to rebellion, but it also can be a knowledge that leads to what? Repentance. It's a knowledge that leads to repentance. So you have the law as a whole or the commandment as the individual command, and they are holy, they are just, and they are good. So you have this, these commands from God. These are, are God's just requirements uh, of what it means to be good, what it means to, to walk with him. And, and, and so if the law, Paul, what Paul is bringing out here, if the law makes us aware of sin, then how can the law be good? How can the law be good? All right, of course, you have two different knowledges or knowledge that leads you to two different paths. Two different directions, a knowledge of rebellion or a knowledge of repentance. Because how can the law be good? The law is a means to call us back to God. The law is a means to call us back to God. And see, the, the, the problem is, is that we, we encounter the law, right? And, and we really want to feel good about ourselves. I mean, I've talked to a, a lot of people that they don't say it this way. They say it a different way. But what they are really telling me is, is, is they really want to feel good about themselves. They want to feel good about their accomplishments. And they want to hear how God loves them. And they, 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 they basically, they basically want to hear how God loves them and they just want to be left alone. I hear it all the time. I'm like, okay, God bless you, you know. I want to hear how God loves me. Does God love us? Yes, God loves us. Thank God God loves us, right? And I do, I, more and more, I, I, I lean more and more, I believe more and more in the free will that God allows humanity to have. Because he will let you live your life any way you so choose. He really will. Now, you will probably have some, and I will probably have some accounting to give for the life that we have lived when we stand before God. But, but the thing is, we, we, we encounter the law, and, and we don't want to deal with that. I've talked to people, they don't want to deal with that. They just, they just want to feel good about themselves. They want to know that God loves them. Rather than to allow the work of the word through the spirit to transform us. And that's the problem. Because any kind of change, 
any kind of transformation, including education, can be very painful. I've told you, I think I've told you guys this, second master's degree, I'm in my first class, right? And I'm reading Plato's Republic. Ever read Plato's Republic? It's a wonderful book, actually, but nonetheless, I don't agree with everything that was written in it, and, and nor should you, okay? But so I'm reading it, first week or so, and I've read three paragraphs, and then I stop, and I realize I haven't retained anything, and I have absolutely no idea what I just read. And I just, and I thought to myself, I'm in so much trouble. Because I've just put out a lot of money to be able to read this book, right? And then write about it and get a grade, hopefully. A good one, hopefully, right? I did the same thing when I was last semester at Gateway, taking a couple of classes. That, and they were difficult classes, and I had to put a lot of work in. And I didn't like to do that. I'd rather, read a, I'd rather go read some other book somewhere. Education is painful at times. Transformation is painful because it's going to call you to give up certain comforts, or so you think they are. Let's call them indulgences instead. No, we're not getting Catholic here, but we'll call them indulgences nonetheless. And we like our indulgences. If we didn't like them, we wouldn't do them. I'm not going to name them. I'll let you name them with, between you and God within your own heart. They're probably different for different people. But to be transformed by the word and by the spirit, first of all, is we have to admit that I am here in this place right here, right now, and God wants me to move on from it. God wants me to become more Christ-like. And yes, on a Sunday morning, I can stand up here and tell you how important it is to be Christ-like. Is it important? Yes, it's important. Do I want to be more Christ-like? Yes, I do. Do you want to be more Christ-like? I think you all do. But the thing is, I don't always want to go through the process I have to go through to get there. Because I'm confronted with the law. I'm confronted with the commands. I'm confronted with God's holy, righteous, and good standard for my life. And I don't always really want to live that out. And neither do you, by the way. Or maybe next week. You ever play that game with God? Okay, I'll do it next week. I think, I think that's one of the most effective tools of Satan is to get us to, to delay our commitment toward a greater holiness, a greater goodness, a greater righteousness in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll do it next week. Because my neighbor's bugging me, right? No, don't answer <laughs> You see, the law 
Some people, uh, people read it different ways. Some people are very black and white in their thinking, and if that's you, that's great. But with me, I read the law, and what it does, it, it starts to prepare my thinking for engagement with God. Because I read the law, and I end up in a place called Penuel, or the River Jabbok. You know what's significant about that? I love that story. It's where Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord all night long. And he wrestles, and he doesn't let, the, the, day, the day is breaking, and, and the angel of the Lord, he's got the angel in a hold. And the angel says, let him go, let me go. And he says, not till you bless me. You remember how the Lord blessed him? Because I think it was the Lord Jesus Christ he's wrestling with. He hits his hip and knocks it out of socket. And he walks with a limp the rest of his life. But he walks with a limp because he was touched by the almighty God. That's powerful. That's powerful. But the thing is, uh, yeah, I want to be touched by God, but can you just kind of give me a high five instead? You know? But we have to be confronted with the law. We have to be confronted with his commands. And when we are confronted with the law when we are confronted with his commands. That calls us, that invites us, that beckons us into a place where we do some serious soul searching. And at times, some serious confession of sin. You see, the law is God's calling back to us. And, and often it is, guys, I think we can only come back to God when we detach ourselves from a life that's focused on self-fulfillment. Particularly if we're attempting to find some kind of fulfillment in a practice of, of a certain sin. See, when you really think about this, this takes us all the way back to Genesis. It takes us back to the book of Genesis because in reality, God is calling you and God is calling I to walk with him in the cool of the day. And what was the problem with the fall of Adam? He disobeyed the command of God. He heard the law. And it was initially a knowledge that led to his rebellion. Eventually, a knowledge that led to his repentance. But God is using the command as a means to call us away from ourselves so that we might walk with him in the cool of the day. So the commandment is holy. I looked up these words, holy, righteous, good. I'm just going to kind of throw them out to you. It refers to being pure, perfect, and worthy. 
it really is a word that is used to describe something that is worthy of God. We'll see that in Romans 12 again. And it also means, this word holy means something that is dedicated and it is consecrated for, to the service of God. I think that is an important thing to think about, dedicated, consecrated uh, to the service of God because it is the, me- the law is the means by which God uses to speak to us in our lives when he is calling us to come closer to him. when we get to that crossroads that I spoke about earlier. That the law is there and the standard has been given, the knowledge has been given, and now we respond one way or the other. Furthermore, it is something that is reserved for God and for God's service. The law is reserved for God and it is for God's service. That is why Jesus tells us in the book of Matthew, I did not come to f- do away with the law, but to do what? To fulfill the law. And he comes and he fulfills the law as the Lamb of God without blemish, without spot, living a sinless life. Never violating the commands and laws of God. And he does that for us as our substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. The laws, the commands are holy. They are also just. They are just, that means uh, according with, with highest standards. Something that is in accordance with the highest standards. Something that is upright, something that is fair. I like that word upright. That's kind of a old King James word, isn't it? I don't really use it a whole lot, at least not outside of church. But but we're we're, we're called to be upright, or or this idea of walking in innocence, walking in purity, to be just, to be in a place where we have been justified. How does the law justify us? I'll get back to that unless I forget. Some try to remind me if I, if I start to close. But the law has a role in the justification of a sinner. Probably never heard that before, have you? Okay, good. We'll get there in a minute, all right? The law, the commands are also good. Very similar in some regards to how this word just talks about it in regards to value. It's something of a very high standard, a very high worth, a very high merit. Something that has a social significance and worth. I thought that was important and interesting. This idea of good, it has a social significance and worth. Social, what do you mean by social? Because we're part of the kingdom. And the law is the kingdom ethic, not the world ethic. 
The law is the kingdom standard, not the world standard. And therefore, it is good. Now, the law plays this role in our justification. You're going to remember, all right? Because as we read in verse 14, he, uh, he says, I know that the law is spiritual. I know that the law is spiritual. If you follow my train of thought here, the law is spiritual. The law plays a role in our justification. Some people read the law and they get all charged up for a while. Or as the pastor of the church that Mary and I both grew up in, they get so charged up they want to charge hell with a squirt gun, right? They get that kind of mentality. And they're going to go out and they're going to do it. Ever meet people like that? They recommit their life to Christ and all of a sudden they're going to take on the world for Jesus. Usually that means they get their backside kicked in trying to do so, but that's another discussion for another time. Some people read the Bible and they think I got to do better. Now, do we have to do better? We probably should, all right? But I don't think that's the main focus of what the law is intended to be. Remember, it, it plays a role in our justification. Because Paul has just told us here in verse 14, the law is spiritual. The law is spiritual. And what that tells me yeah, I've studied a lot of spirituality, all right? When I read that the law is spiritual and I go to the law and I read it and in the back of my mind I remember, oh, the law is spiritual, it tells me that God is beckoning me, God is inviting me, God is calling me, God is drawing me into a greater relationship with him. Why? Because I read the law and I know I can't do it. So that's part of the role of our justification that the law plays because I read the law and I know I can't fulfill it. I know I can't do it. But I read it and I realize that this is God's word. I realize that this is God's standard. I realize that this is something I need to pay attention to and just not sweep under the carpet and hope to God that when I stand before him, he grades on a curve like some people do. That's horrible theology, by the way. Horrible theology. Because when we truly read the law, I believe our response should be to cast ourselves on the mercy that Jesus Christ has upon us and be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed for us when he died on the cross on our behalf. I read the law and it beckons me to a spiritual life that can only be had in a relationship to Jesus Christ with a dependency upon his Holy Spirit. So I read the law and I, I, and I can respond with, boy, I'm in trouble. Because I, I, 
I've been in church a while, right? I've seen countless people that, you know, <laughs> respond in an altar call and recommit their life to Christ, and they're going to do better. Three months later, they're back doing the same thing again. Now, thank God they kept coming back, all right? I'm not trying to make fun of them. But it's a recognition that I can never do better. But wrapped around that recognition that I can never do better is that I'm not required to because Jesus did better for me. He paid the price for me. I look at the law and I'm sunk, but I look at Jesus Christ who came to fulfill the law and I can cast myself on his mercy and upon his grace. And so I read the law and, and instead of either saying I gotta do this or being discouraged and saying I can't do this, I have to read the law with the recognition that there has to be another way. There has to be another way. Because the law brings us to confrontation with ourselves, if we're honest. And when we confront ourselves, we also are confronted with God. Okay, I'm this way. I'm a sinner. You have to save me if you're willing. And according to your word, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. According to your world, you are willing. And do you understand maybe a little bit more why Paul tells us in Galatians that the, that the law was a tutor or a schoolmaster or an overseer to show us of our need for Christ? I read it. I realize I can't fulfill it. And I can either be discouraged or I can be joyful knowing that Jesus Christ has done that on our behalf. That he's fulfilled the law. Because he is holy. He is just. And he is good. Real quick, the law, holy, just, and good. Matthew 22. Verse 36, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, now I got a red flag next to that. Okay, anyway. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What is the greatest commandment? So we're, we're hitting dead central here. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. 
And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus just defined for us what is holy, just, or righteous, and good. That we love the Lord God with our heart, our soul, and our mind. And the second is like the first. The second is like the first, he tells us. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's our calling to be holy, to be just, and to be good. Because we're to love our neighbor. I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to throw this out here and let you chew on it. When Jesus was asked and challenged about this idea of loving your neighbor, what story did he give us in the Gospels to illustrate who our neighbor was? Story of the Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan. It's not in Matthew. It's in another Gospel. But he tells the story of a Samaritan that was a despised person by the Jews, and it was the Samaritan that rendered aid to the person who was beat up by the robbers. And he used a Samaritan to illustrate to his people what it meant to love your neighbor. I find that to be fascinating. Because I love my church members. And I love some of the people I live with. And I love a few people in town. <laughs> but they're all our neighbor. They're all our neighbor. And they are people that we see that I believe that the Lord desires to use us to share the love of Christ with. Because that is holy, that is just, and that is good.